everyone, welcome to a brand new episode of the Genre Equality Podcast on the Genre Equality Channel. I'm Hitzer. I'm Isa. Uh, and this week, we're here to talk to you about all the great, well, or not so great, uh, sci-fi, fantasy, and horror from the past month. This is, of course, Halloween season, so uh, it's going to be headlined by a horror comedy, um, a really famous one by Taika Watiti. Yeah. The third <laughs> season of What We Do in the Shadows has just about wrapped up, and we're going to be talking about it, and it's probably going to be the highest rated show of this month, I mean, spoiler alert. Plus, we'll talk about <laughs> season one of Marvel's What If, which is the first animated series yep. in the MCU canon. Uh, we'll be talking about the sequel to the much maligned slash ironically celebrated Venom movie. Uh, <laughs> Venom 2, Let There Be Carnage is out in cinema, so we'll talk about that. Plus, I'll be giving my thoughts on Apple TV's foundation series uh, a bunch mm. of indie films and animations out there isa is going to be you know jumping into a couple of big anime uh particularly violet evergarden the movie and bright the anime sequel prequel ish called samurai soul yeah uh and and lots of other things uh, including you know big blockbusters like halloween uh or indie horror like atlas um so yeah i mean we'll, we'll get into all of that a little bit later but let's kick it off with the third season of what we do in the shadows, which, mm-hmm. man, uh, as as <laughs> if you're not if you're not aware already, right? I mean, this is spun off from Taika Watiti's much beloved mockumentary. Um, this small screen version of what we do in the shadows has, in my opinion, um, surpassed even its beloved source material to oh, become yeah. one of TV's most endearingly funny comedies and. When we last left this house of Staten Island vampires, um, Nandros <laughs> familiar, uh, Guillermo uh, had not only been revealed to the group as a vampire hunter, but had killed 70% of the vampires in the tri-state area. Um, <laughs> season 3 follows up on the carnage in, a, in, in very unexpected ways. In an out-of-left-field twist, the foursome learn that instead of being punished for their crime, they are appointed... Uh, by default, essentially, as the new leaders of the Eastern Seaboard's Vampiric Council, uh, while Guillermo gets a, a sort of promotion as a vampire's bodyguard. Um, season 3 finds the crew mostly splitting their time between the traditional housemate home shenanigans and their new base of operations at the Vampiric Council headquarters, <laughs> turning the show into more of a workplace comedy. Um, the new location is a great setting. It's a place for wonders, many of which end up being ruined uh, by the new leaders. Um, much to, sh- to the chagrin of the Vampiric Council advisor, the guide, uh, played by the lovely Kristen Shaw. Yeah. Um, for example, in the episode The Clue of Duplication, the title Garment is used to help Nandor get a girlfriend at his local gym. Um, Colin Robinson is seeking out information about his past as his energy vampire. Um, Laszlo is preoccupied with the library's treasure trove of pornography, um, <laughs> including the Nopnomicon. Uh, meanwhile, Naja and Nandor are bickering over who should be the true leader of the of the council. Um, so they end up being co-leaders. Um, what do you think about this more workplace comedy approach to the third season? Oh man, I love it. Uh, I, I think at the kind of like end of season two, you get the sense that before the finale, right? Before... Uh, Guillermo goes all um, uh, all Van Helsing on shit. Yeah. Uh, they did need to start shaking things up and I kind of up the ante for that. Mm-hmm. And I think going into 
uh, I I thought that there would be a much greater focus on you know Guillermo's part as uh, a vampire killer. So yep. the shift towards it being a workplace comedy was something that I did not quite mm-hmm. um, was not quite prepared for. Uh, but it's yep. a, it's kind of a welcome change, right? Like I feel in particular the way that the group works together in a slightly different um, circumstance. It mm. brings up a lot of each character that we've gotten to know over the two seasons. In, in It highlights like different parts of their character, which works for fantastic kind of comedy and points of tension as yep. you go there. And there's like no escaping each other, especially because like when they're at work, they're all together. When they're at home, they're all together. Uh, yeah. And, you know, it's just more shenanigans all around. And it's, mm-hmm. it's funny to see those... Um, those shenanigans expand out into a much bigger world than just you know their abode. Yes, yes. Uh, I think like um in in addition to the workplace aspect of it, I think more than in previous seasons, the vampires are finally seeming or learning uh to consider each other as like a found family. Yeah. Um. There there is endless bickering, but we also see just how much this group kind of sometimes begrudgingly, but also truly care for each other after centuries together. Um, and to complement the new heart, the, the jokes are also funnier. Yeah. They're faster than they've ever been. Um, season 3 also brings together like um, unforeseen combinations of characters that shouldn't work on paper but come together <laughs> beautifully. Yeah. I think um, Laszlo and Colin have uh, have pity on each other's loneliness and begin to bond into a bizarre new friendship. Oh, God. Um, and we see different mixtures of characters that, that we get to see here for unseen layers that go beyond but as you mentioned the characterizations we've come to know and love you know um, season 2 proved that by giving individual characters their time in the spotlight uh, they can bring about some of the show's best episodes as with the Jackie Daytona episode for yep, example yep. but what we do in the shadows also brilliantly excels this season when it focuses on the group as a whole um, a standout episode this season is called The Casino. Um, <laughs> it, it, it takes the crew to Atlantic City for what might be the show's funniest half hour. Um, it was absolutely hilarious from the, from the fake rat pack um, to, to Guillermo like, traveling around the world to collect soil from the vampire's homeland so they can sleep. Um, that, that episode was a rapid-fire joke machine. We also have other episodes about um, Colin Robinson falling in love with... Uh, Chicken Siren oh Jersey Shore hybrid. <laughs> um, Nadja's doll inhabited by her human soul feeling left out of the group. Um, an original vampire called the Sire running loose in New York. Yeah. Um, there are gossipy gargoyles and, and Nand- Nando's longtime girlfriend, or on and off girlfriend, uh, Gail, which leads to an amazing Twilight parody, yeah. by, by the way. <laughs> um, you have like Nando's midlife crisis leading him to join an 80s-themed dance commune filled with vampires who pretend that they're human uh, and love the bare-naked ladies hit one week. Um, <laughs> we even have another Blade cameo, this time from Donald Logue. Um, and actually, my favorite new character of all is uh, Laszlo's human best friend, Shawnee, oh um, <laughs> who Laszlo is forced to save from a gambling addiction yeah. uh, and, and being roped into a pyramid scheme in, involving the My Pillow guy. Um, what what would what were your favorite parts of season three? Oh, definitely, Casino is a standout for sure. Yeah, yep, uh, yep. I I thought like Laszlo, Laszlo and Colleen on the siren was great. Uh, yep. the wellness center one was like kind of played up for, for a lot of jokes. Uh, in in general, and and it's kind of like uh, a capstone to them discovering all these other groups of vampires. Mm. Uh, was really really funny. Um, uh, 
what's the episode where Nadia goes to the energy vampire enclave um, to collect the <laughs> tributes? That was also yeah, 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 yeah. That's one of the early ones actually in the season. Yeah, yeah that was really, really funny. Uh, that and just in general, like it's been kind of nonstop. And having been able to binge most of the episodes at one go. Um, you know, I just kind of left it like on and playing just because it's like it's hit after hit, right? Like there isn't actually any downtime for this season in particular. You know, mm. um, they, they, I, I think in season two we had a bit more, uh, a more space for contemplative moments, right? Yep. Uh, but at the same time, I also feel like um, Jimmy Clement is aware that two seasons have has earned a lot of goodwill and that by this time a lot of the audiences are on board and are in to the yeah. inside jokes and the character backstories and, and all of that so he's he's not afraid to kind of let all of them just go off the hook and deliver like uh, laugh after laugh blow after blow you know uh, and just mm-hmm. keep the entire thing moving forward mm. uh, it, it, it did feel very action packed more so than the other seasons Right, there's because they are now involved in both home life and work life, and now they have an outside life and relationships with each other, much like Laszlo and Colin. I think that's the biggest kind yeah. of um, um, example of that. Like, it doesn't feel as though there is any any empty spaces that necessarily need to drag on mm-hmm. uh, for that. Yeah, but definitely, I think Casino was great. Siren was great. Uh, Wellness Center was great. Uh, those are the three kind of standout ones for me. There were a couple of scenes like Cloak of Duplication. Oh my god. Like Colin. Yeah. Colin's nagging thing was yeah. laugh out loud hilarious. Yeah, yeah. And the thing is like it's it's an actual real life theory that yeah. like, you know, a bunch of like incels try to do on, on Reddit, you know. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a kind of crazy hangover from early two thousands uh yeah. pickup culture, right? Um based yeah. upon this guy called the game. Yep. Yeah. Uh yeah. Uh, very outdated, very very hated now. Uh, and yeah. people are on to that. But the fact that Colin is aware of it mm. and trying to actively use it on <laughs> on Nando's behalf is incredibly funny, right? Yeah. Um. Yeah. I. I. Yeah. That it, it's it's fascinating to have such a like it's it's just one kind of one step up, right? For them to to have it become a workplace comedy, but that one step also expands the world significantly around them, um, mm-hmm. you know. And of course, like in season two, we find out who's on the vampire concert and all of that, and then there are all these kind of guest stars, and and yep. and you know, you you start to find out. You we get a bit more of that here, but it does feel like the world in that the vampires inhabit feels much bigger than just one house. And that just allows them so much free space and free play to get to all sorts of rubbish. Um, mm. Yeah. So, I mean, like, there isn't a bad episode, you know, yep. this season. And I think, like, that is... For, to be able to deliver consistently funny stuff and to be, to be able to up the ante in such a simple, but at the same time, very profoundly impactful way, it's just, mm-hmm. uh, man, what we do in the shadows is definitely one of the funniest things out there. And it continues to deliver. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, what we do in the shadows has been one of the funniest uh, shows on television since the day it debuted. And I think season three has only escalated my appreciation. Oh, yeah. Um, it continues to be hilarious. Um, it continues to advance character development. And it does all of this while unifying the group um, even tighter as a tremendous ensemble. 
Um, I think, like you said, like by bringing new power and new responsibilities to these characters in season three, what we do in the shadows um, managed to infuse fresh blood and dynamics into what was already one of uh, TV's best comedies. You know, um, before we give our rating, right? Um, any final thoughts on season three? I mean, I, I, me in particular, my final thought is. I mean, the penultimate episode of, of season three <laughs> probably like delivers like one of the most um, status quo shaking yeah. um, twists yeah. in the show, and which I don't know how they're going to follow up. But they've earned enough goodwill from me um, to want to see what happens and not be disappointed by one character seemingly going away. Yeah. Um, I don't know, but it, it is it is a very like insane twist and, and I think like they're very bold to be able to do something like I that. I think so. I think so. Uh it it was curious because like when I was done with the season, I thought I had finished like all the episodes and then I went to check. Uh mm-hmm. it's actually surprised me that there is one more episode because I felt like where they ended episode nine was perfect yeah. to end a season with, right? Like it sets up an entirely new season and all of that. But you know, apparently they have other plans. So I'm super curious to see uh, what comes out next week. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and and how exactly they're going to add another 30 minutes to this, which, uh, you know, when I felt like the ending of episode 9 should have been it, right? Or could have been it. Like, it's just a very yeah. solid way to end a very solid season. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, I'm, I, I get the feeling that there's still, just because of the way they've, they've approached the three seasons so far, there's still a lot of... Um, there's a lot of space for them to continue to push boundaries uh, and continue to expand the world and, and develop the characters there just because they've been very conservative in the way that they go about it, right? It's not like every yeah. season opens with like this grand, huge change or anything of the sort. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, and uh, that just makes me more excited for more, more seasons to come. And, like I can't... With how we are ending this season, right? Uh, mm-hmm. our, uh, last episode, notwithstanding. Mm. Uh, I can only hope for what's coming ahead, right? We are digging into kind of like the law behind, you know, the vampires. We're starting to see that side of the world itself, uh, which is something that we haven't seen in the first two seasons. We didn't even yep. see in the movie itself. Um, yeah. So like, I'm a big geek about like like law of supernatural creatures and stuff like that. So I'm mm. super excited to see what they do. Nice, nice. Uh, how would you rate season three overall? I think it's a solid eight for me. Yep. Yeah. Solid eight out of ten. Um. That can't go wrong with this. Like, if you need a laugh, you need something to take your mind off. You know, all the things that are going on in the world, and just kind of jump into a silly supernatural fantasy with relatively low stakes, as far as 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 you can tell. Mm-hmm. Uh. But something that you can get really invested into. If you've never watched what we do in the shadows, you've got three whole seasons to get to know the characters. And you, if you're already, you know, in on it, then like season three gives you more of the same and even better. Mm. Yes, yeah. Um, similarly, I'm gonna rate it an eight out of ten as well. Highly recommend it. Go check it out. Um, it's available on Disney Plus in Singapore if you want to watch it there. Of course, it's available on FX in the US and in other territories. Uh, yeah. I mean, yep. couldn't be more highly recommended. Probably the the best show that we're talking about this uh, on this episode. Uh, next up, we move on mm-hmm. to. Well, Disney Plus, once again, um, to talk about <laughs> what if, question mark, um, with the timelines uh, thrown wide open at the conclusion of the Loki series, the MCU's latest Disney Plus show is a, a, a bit of a different stroke for them. It's an animated anthology yep. that reimagines noteworthy events in their canon to create a multiverse of infinite possibilities. Um, what if posits 
the multitude of different ways that iconic characters and stories could have gone if their choices or circumstances had been different. There is an uh, alternate reality Peggy Carter who, who takes the Super Soldier Serum instead of Steve Rogers. Um, there is a T'Challa as Star-Lord. Um, what If is, for the most part, a very breezy and a very entertaining show um, narrated by The Watcher, uh, voiced by Jeffrey Wright, um, who serves mm-hmm. as this sort of passive, omnipotent deity, uh, a kind of Rod Serling of this Twilight Zone-ish collection of fresh stakes. Um, this series is a clever conceit for mixing and matching the Avengers and their adversaries into unique configurations. Uh, what was your take on season one of What If? Um... I, okay, so my introduction to What If started when when the first What If comic book started coming out, right? Yeah. Uh, I believe the first one that I picked up was um, the one about Wolverine uh, being stripped of his adamantium before that made it into the mainline comics. Um, yep, yep, yep. I think that was What If 1, if I'm not wrong, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so like the whole idea of it fascinated me at, this po- uh, at that point in time, right? Because it makes it so interesting, especially in a time where Marvel was going through like multiple kind of reboots of the universe uh, that they were doing just to mm. have that on kind of like a back burner side issue thing. So when they announced What If, I was just like, okay, cool. I, I know what this is going to be about, right? Like more or less, you know, you just tweak one thing or like a question or essentially what it would have been if the writer of a particular comic book had made a decision differently, right? And it basically mm. changed the outcome of that. Uh, yep. What we ended up getting was an anthology series that ends up being tied together in an yeah. interesting way yeah. uh, and looks like moving forward will con- might continue moving in, the, in that direction if there is a what-if season two. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but generally speaking, like I think it's been a very smart move uh, by Marvel to bring in more and more um, more stories and more widely varied stories and tie that into upcoming uh, upcoming uh, pieces in the franchise itself, right? Like, obviously, what it fits very nicely into yeah. what's happened with Loki, what's happened with uh, WandaVision, and what's mm-hmm. going to happen in Multiverse of Madness. Uh, all of those things are very neatly lined up, right? But yeah. as you're watching the entire series itself, you never feel that until, you know, um, kind of the end of the series. Um mm-hmm. And then all the pieces kind of fall together. And that's something that the MCU has consistently done very, very well. Uh, There is very little I have to complain about the What If series, right? I think the animation Mm -hmm. is stellar. I think Mm -hmm. the soundtrack is great. Uh, The fact that almost like, what, 70 or 80% of the actual actors, live action actors, have come back to voice their characters Mm -hmm. um, does deliver a great deal Uh. More gravitas to the to to the what we're watching here because it makes you feel like you you know you're revisiting characters that you've already grown to love right or you already know, uh yeah. and and that makes a big deal of it. Um, some of the episodes are definitely stronger than others. It's a bit mm-hmm. of a mixed bag for sure, mm-hmm. uh, and I think they do span the whole all sorts of genres right. Whether you want your, you know, your zombies, whether you want your you know really silly like. Uh, Fred Boythor was one of my personal favorites, actually. Mm. Um, and and uh, this whole kind of mixed bag in there. Um, what really 
hit home, I think for me, is the having a greater kind of focus on T'Challa's character, right? In mm. multiple forms um, and, and, you know, the very moving tributes to Chadwick Boseman. Yeah. Um, that really kind of hit home. Like being able to hear his voice again and, and see the character uh, was, was unexpectedly emotional. Um, mm. you know, and I'm glad that they, they took the time to um to to flesh all of that out. Uh if I'm not wrong, he actually does voice the majority of the lines. Yeah. Um itself. Um, yeah, yeah. You're right. Absolutely yeah. right about it. Yeah. But with any sort of what if scenario, right? Like um uh, it, it, it does swing very big. Uh mm. I do have issues with like plot and continuity things. But because it's also multiversal, a lot of it can be hand-waved away, right? Because there's mm. only so many characters you can follow and so much of the story that you have uh, knowledge of or background knowledge of. Uh, and so a lot of that gets easily kind of hand-waved. And of course, when you bring in the Watcher, uh, you know, things get that get complicated there. Always been a fascinating sort of character. Always been at kind of like the pinnacle of what cosmic you know, things could possibly happen within any given Marvel uh, universe. Mm. Uh, but at the same time, also comes with a lot of complicated baggage, right, from the comic book itself. I think the way that they treated it and Jeffrey Wright's extremely amazing voice work um, mm-hmm. this time around uh, did add a lot of weight to that. Uh, mm. So for what it is overall, like the entire package of what it is, I think it was a pretty good outing all in all. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, um, as you mentioned, the quality overall, like all anthologies, is was inconsistent. But you know, there are some extremely standout episodes. You know, the the Captain Carter premiere was was oh, a yeah. fun ride. Mm-hmm. Um, episode two, which is probably one of the highlights, as you mentioned, one of Chadwick Boseman's final gallant performances as the voices of as the voice of T'Challa. Um, the whole idea of instead of you know Peter Quill's off mocked version of the character like this Star-Lord <laughs> instead is a revered Robin Hoodish mercenary who drastically changes the universe for the better you know yep. the ravages are the good guys um, Thanos is part of the Guardians after T'Challa convinces him that his genocide plan was a bad one um, Nebula is a classic femme fatale bombshell and you know they all engage in this Ocean's Eleven heist thing yep. with, um, to steal something from the Collector it was a really cool episode yeah. um Killmonger's episode was really good too. You know, he's one of the best villains the MCU has ever oh, yeah. created. Yep. Uh, and just watching him play um, essentially war games and, and maneuvering Tony Stark and Wakanda so successfully um, feels like, uh, feels yeah. glorious. Yeah. Um, and I, like, but that's it, you know, not, not all the episodes are of this high of, of a quality and it can be hit or miss. Yeah. Uh, but what I think many viewers didn't expect was, as we have already like touched upon, like, what if would directly borrow from the MCU phase one formula? Mm-hmm. The standalone episodes were actually just origin stories. Yep. Um, some great, some good, some mediocre. But in the end, all were important to watch because they tied together into an Avengers-esque team-up finale where mm. the protagonists of each episode all come together to form the Guardians of the Multiverse to defeat a multiverse-conquering version of Ultron. Um, Marvel is very good at this. The, the overarching formula that forces you to consume everything they make, even the subpar entries, yeah, yeah. Um, be- because you want to get the full picture. Uh, and in the end, they make it worth your while because the final two climactic episodes were pretty badass. Mm-hmm. Um, first, 
you know, we finally got the age of Ultron we've always wanted. Um, all told concisely in 30 minutes, something that Joss Whedon couldn't do in two hours. Yeah. Um, featuring an awesome fight with Uatu, uh, you know, as, as Ultron and the Watcher kind of literally battle through the multiverse in yeah. an epic tussle. Uh, then we got that epic finale that tied everything together very nicely. Um, you know, like we've, we've listed a lot of our favorite episodes and I think that it all came together very nicely as both an anthology and a serialized uh, story, something yep. that Marvel likes to... Um, Pull out of the bag. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, they're very fancy. It's like, oh, it's not just standalone, but if, you know, it all ties together. Yeah. All very, all very well done, you know. Um, of course, you know, there was one episode of season one that got cut. Uh, which was the Gamora episode. Um, yep. the, the finale introduced a version of Gamora. Um, it seemed that there was supposed to be a Gamora episode that they actually um, shot and animated and filmed. Um, it got cut. Um, do you know why the, why the Gamora episode was removed from season one and oh. pushed to season two? Oh, no, no. Uh, um, the spoilers, right? Yeah. Yeah, there was basically spoilers for, for some of the upcoming movies. Uh, yeah. Um, they needed to move away, yeah. Unwittingly, the the what if the what if showrunner um created the Gamora episode and was told after he turned it in that the plot was the exact plot of Guardians Three, mm-hmm. um so he was just like oh oh well we we we'll, we'll we'll push the Gamora character to season two yeah um and and all in all this this was kind of a, a wild and trippy ride it was filled with inventive twists um fascinating hypotheticals um and quite dynamic cell shading animation which is lively and colorful and yeah. lends well to action sequences i'm typically not a fan of that animation style but Neither am I. it worked i think it they did very well, well here. yeah like it definitely added a lot to the action some of the best fights i've seen in animation in a while uh mm-hmm. for this particular art style like yeah yeah when you have the kind of like <sighs> money power that disney has right like you really can afford to throw the best at mm. you know, uh, at, at a at a project like this, and it really really shows, like yep. it's very difficult to fault anything with the polish and the the animation, the voice acting and the music. Like it 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 when you're when you're producing things at this level, it really is about the writing then, right? Like because like you you maxed out all your stats on everything else, uh, mm-hmm. the story ultimately is what will save or sub <laughs> a particular mm-hmm. episode. So. Yeah. Yeah. Uh definitely, man. Um, how would you rate this overall as a season? Um, I, I do uh it is a very, very solid recommendation for me. I'm gonna give it a seven. Um mm. just because I feel like there were a few gaps kind of here and there. Uh as much as I enjoyed like Fred Boyeto, like that episode felt too long, uh yep. and not very consequential, right? Mm. Um and also like the zombies episode was mm-hmm. cool to mm-hmm. see animated and on screen. But at mm-hmm. the same time, like I think people who have read Marvel Zombies, right, come with like big expectations. Uh mm-hmm. un- unreal expectations of what can possibly fit in a half an hour animation. Right. Yeah. Uh, because like Marvel Zombies, it's its own thing. It has legions of fans. It is probably one of the most when it came out, one of the most inventive, thought-provoking. Uh, horrific um, mm-hmm. kind of like uh, uh, issues that, that Marvel has ever put out. Uh, mm-hmm. So I don't know if that particular episode necessarily um, necessarily met my expectations. I know it's a lot to put on that. Uh, yeah. yeah. And um, yeah, episode three was meh. 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so like it, as an anthology again, right? It, it's uneven and that just prevents it from getting a higher score. Uh, yeah. But I mean, overall, like seven is very, very solid for what is the MCU's first um, foray into animation. Yeah, I mean, similarly, I'll give it a seven as well. Um, pretty solid animation. Probably not the best Marvel series to have come out on Disney Plus. Oh yeah. Uh, but still worth a watch. I think um, Marvel is still kind of betting at a hundred in terms of not making anything outrightly bad. Yeah. Um. So yeah. Uh. They they con- they keep the train rolling and there's more to come. There's there's Hawkeye next month. There's Eternals the next month. Um. Spider Man. Uh, it's just so much marble to consume. Um, it seems that 2021 is their year. Uh, mm-hmm. wh- while 2022, DC will attempt to retake the mantle with uh, the Batman. Uh, but that remains to be seen. Uh, um, DC has a lot of big plans and they never just come true. Yeah. Uh, oh, well, it's still, it's, it's still Marvel's world and we're living in it. Um, next up, let's move on to a Marvel-adjacent property <laughs> um, in Venom, Let There Be Carnage. Um, in this sequel to Tom Hardy's Venom, Eddie Brock is still struggling to coexist with the shape-shifting alien symbiote Venom um, when the deranged serial killer Cletus Cassidy, played by Woody Harrelson, also becomes host to an alien symbiote. Venom and Brock must put aside their differences to stop his reign of terror as Carnage. Um, In my opinion, Venom 2's greatest strength is that it learned to lean into the parts that made Venom 1 work. Oh, yeah. The oddball bromance chemistry between Eddie and the symbiote. Um, in the sequel, their dynamic is more in your face. It is a zanier, it's sillier, it's more broadly funnier. Um, the film feels like a throwback to the style of 90s superhero movies and or comedies like The Mask, for example. Um, mm-hmm. It's silly, fun and brisk, and at less than 90 minutes, um, the the briskness and the zaniness and the harmlessness of it makes up for how dumb and superfluous it is. It's pure fluff. <laughs> um, what do you think of Venom Two? Oh man, yeah, I, I totally agree with you. With them like leaning into the better parts of last season, the only issue I have is that the bad parts of of last uh the last movie are also here. Uh, mm. I I do yep. feel. That Woody Harrelson as 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 Cassidy is and is inspired casting. Uh that I, I, I had my questions about. I mean, like, you know, Woody Harrelson has a huge number of very, very popular characters in pop culture in general over the years, right? Like fan yep. favorites all around. Um, mm-hmm. but I, I just think that when they did that, I wasn't sure if his interpretation of him necessarily matched my idea of who the serial killer was supposed to be as I read the comics or even um, his... Okay, my de facto reference for that is his portrayal in the animated Spider-Man series of the 90s um, mm. where we got, uh, you know, that whole like Spider-Carnage arc as well as, as kind of part of that. Um, so that was kind of my, like, you know, that was what uh, Cletus Cassidy was supposed to be. But I think yeah. Harrelson brought <laughs> his A-game for this in his own, you know there's something about his characters that are very him, right? Uh, mm. And it worked. It totally worked. Uh, I will say, yeah, I, I will say overall, you know, um, what I was extremely happy about was the way that uh, they fleshed out Carnage. The CGI was actually pretty breathtaking, right? It felt uh. massive. It felt immense. You know, it didn't feel too, you know, uh, uncanny valley. Like, mm. um, some of the fight scenes were really cool. Uh, but at the same time, 
it's very obvious, I think, that there was a lot of focus and budget focused on around those particular scenes. That's something mm-hmm. that they knew that they had to nail in order not to disappoint fans. Uh, yep. But the overall movie has is of little consequence, mm-hmm. right? Like to the world, to, I mean, like very little consequence to me as a fan and very little consequence to the in-story world as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it didn't feel like the stakes were high enough at any given point in time. Mm. Um, yeah, and you know, a, a, we on the one hand we have you know the 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 whole uh, romantic comedy, the wrong whole rom com thing going on with Venom and Brock, uh, mm. you know, and then on the other side of things, you kind of have a very, uh, I don't know, um, uh, like. It's cartoon like carnage inclusion in this um is very cartoonish, right? Like they're leaning into the camp of that. Uh when I do feel there were points in the movie where they could have turned it up a notch and changed the tone dramatically and that would have shook things up a bit more from the first movie. Um mm. but yeah, overall I think it was a it was it was not bad. Uh I had yeah. fun with it for sure. Uh mm. and yeah, but like Woody Harrelson is definitely the best part of the movie. Uh, uh, and I, yeah, how would you how would you rate this overall uh, as a movie? Uh, I'm gonna give it like a six point five. Uh, okay. you know, it's it's kind of like if you enjoyed the first movie, by all means, you are definitely gonna enjoy this one. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you are big fans of the symbiotes and all that, I I think like there's no harm watching this movie. Uh, you okay. know, and this time round, like being that it is, it feels fairly divorced from the very contrived origin story in the first movie. Uh, you know, like if you're a Puritan about it, um, it doesn't really matter for the second movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm giving this a six out of ten as well. Um, so you know, um, a decent movie, probably go rent it when it's out on VOD or something. Yep. Uh, probably not worth like a thirteen dollar weekend viewing or something like that. But you know, if you have like ninety minutes free and it's out on whatever streaming service that you have. Go catch it, you know. Um, you can do your ironing with it or something. It's it's that inconsequential, uh, but yeah. still fun to watch. Um, we usually don't do this for movies this these uh this light. Uh, but I'm gonna delve <laughs> into a, spo- a spoiler section here. Uh, yeah. so I'm gonna talk about spoilers in three, two, one. So the most important thing about Venom Two is the post credit sequence. Uh, mm-hmm. where Eddie Brock and Venom um, were transported from their universe into the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Um, we see J.K. Simmons, we see Venom and Eddie Brock take notice of Tom Holland's Spider-Man, um, obviously implying that you know the crossover is coming. Sony is really pushing for that. Um, where do you think this happens and what do you think this means for, for the Spider-Man Venom-verse? Yeah, uh, I'm not sure if... It necessarily is going to have any impact from what's the next one called? Away from home, um, uh, something like that. Way back something home. From... Way back. No home. way home. Yes. No way home. No way home. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm getting confused with all these home home things. Yeah, which is supposed to be the last kind of like part of the trilogy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that they announced for for Tom Holland Spider Man at least. Um, I'm not sure if it necessarily will have an impact for that. I think it'll be very interesting if it does, considering the fact that we've already seen leaks of the fact that Doc Ock is going to be around uh, yep. and it is going to be played by Alfred Molina, who played the original Doc Ock in just Spider-Man, right? Mm-hmm. Was it? Yeah, just uh, Spider-Man 2. Spider-Man uh, 2. Yeah, Spider-Man 2, which, you know, in many fans, it still continues to be one of the best Spider-Man movies ever made. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. 
So I'm excited about that. I don't know if there is enough time given that there is a lot of overlap with... There's a lot of loose ends that need to be tied up from the last Spider-Man movie with the fact yep. that Doc Ong is coming in and the fact that there's going to be overlap with multiversal stuff. Um, mm-hmm. you know. But eventually, I do feel like it's probably going to end up being a Sinister Six thing. Right, mm. because I mean, all the all the dominoes have been set up already. Right now, moving Venom into the to I guess the Sony MCU verse yep. for Spider Man, bringing in Doc Ock. We already have Voucher, right? Yeah, Electro uh, Electro is in it as well. Jimmy Fox is back here. Yeah. yeah, right. Uh, there is a lot of rehabilitation that needs to take place for many of these guys, yep. um, and w- they're just missing uh, Lizard. Rhino, right? Uh, I, I think that's basically it. Um, yeah. You know, so like, it's it's going to be pretty interesting uh, if they do end up doing that. I do feel that up to this point, um, t- Spider-Man hasn't really had a challenge in the MCU, right? Mm-hmm. He's always been backed up by, you know, a, a whole host of, you know, whether it's Iron Man and his new suits or Stark Tech or the fact that he's with the Avengers, like nothing has really truly felt threatening mm-hmm. uh to him. And I think that is a very integral part of the Spider-Man story. The fact that at the end of the day, outside of his he's not an amazing hero. He's not Omega level, he's not Thor, he's not a fucking god or anything of the sort. He's a street level hero who constantly finds himself in in kind of like a lot of danger, right? Yeah. Um and that's important important part of, of kind of Parker's journey as, as a hero, but we haven't seen that yet just because he's been caught up in everybody else's drama so mm-hmm. a shift in focus whether it be in the new movie that's coming up or in a future part of the franchise that consolidates his story and his struggle as a street level hero would be mm-hmm. fascinating i think it's an important thing to do if they want to grow the character within this particular version of the franchise that has now been rebooted more times than it should have been Yep, uh, yep, yep. And definitely give it an avenue to grow into something truly, uh, that can truly stand, stay the course, right? Uh, in, into a long running franchise. So okay. we'll see. We'll see. Yeah. Uh, and next up, I'm going to be delving into the first part of Quick Hits, uh, where I'll be talking about some of the films and TV shows that Michael Hose probably has not had time to see, but I have. Mm. Um, first up, I'm going to be talking about Foundation. Um, in 1966, uh, Isaac Asimov's Foundation trilogy, which you know I talked about in the last episode, um, was voted the best sci-fi series of all time at the Hugo Awards. Um, since then, other series have certainly surpassed it, although it's still considered the work that codified the genre. Mm-hmm. Um, I myself described how I was awed and and how I, uh, you know, how I was amazed by the Foundation books on on the last episode, and I think the core concepts are still forward thinking even today um, despite its fame uh, because the series is an epic on a galactic level told over the course of 500 years or so with mm-hmm. dozens of characters and conflicts and stories no one has figured out how to bring foundation into live action until now um, Apple TV's new foundation series um, unfortunately I hasn't figured it out either um, <laughs> Foundation, the TV show, is not Foundation, the book series. There yeah. are a few bones of the original story in there for sure, including the premise. Um, it, it focuses on mathematician slash psychologist Harry Seldon, who creates the mm-hmm. field of psychohistory in which the, the future can be 
um, predicted to a, a remarkable accuracy, not for individuals, but for humanity in general. And he has discovered the horror, horrifying truth that the 12,000-year-old galactic empire is going to fall, beginning a new dark mm. age that will last 30,000 years. If it can't be stopped, it can be reduced to a mere millennium by creating a repository of human knowledge to become the quote-unquote foundation of a new civilization. Um, it's an astoundingly great premise that could never be served in a movie, and a TV adaptation yeah. was never going to be easy either. The first Foundation book alone is made up of five separate novellas that have no characters in common and take place over <laughs> 150 years. Um, yeah. Very, very few of those characters are developed because we spend so little time with them. They are not the story. The Foundation is the story and how it develops over time. TV audiences, though, would understandably have a hard time getting invested in a show where the entire cast and conflict changes every episode. Um, showrunner David S. Goyer limits Foundation's first season into the first two-fifths of the original novel and ties them together in a somewhat forced way. Goyer's idea is to have Lee Pace not just play Emperor Cleon, but an eternally cloned Emperor Cleon, uh, like this world's uh, version of Duncan Idaho. Um, it, it's kind of um, a unique way to give the series a basically consistent antagonist through the ages because he keeps getting cloned yeah. uh, and reborn and reborn and reborn. Um, changing the characters' genders and ethnicities. Um, it's um, you know a bit of an old hat for modern times. Um, and I think kind of important here because there were virtually no female characters in Asimov's early books. Uh, mm. And it doesn't affect the, the story in the slightest, so that's not an issue. Um, and, and Goya begins the show with a bit of sci-fi spectacle that will absolutely hook audiences into rooting for Harry Seldon's grand plan to succeed. Uh, here's the catch, though. Um, making a 10-episode season out of the first 100 pages of text um, is an act of lunacy uh, <laughs> on, on, par of, on par with uh, turning The Hobbit into three movies. Um, yeah. So much needs to be added to fill out these episodes, which feel so much longer than the hour they generally run. Um, mm -hmm. Some of these additions are, are welcome, you know, um, Hari's protege Gal Dornick and um, Salvador Hardin get extensive and badly needed backstories to expand their characters. Mm -hmm. um, Emperor Cleon, who barely figures in the first book, not only has his own major storyline, but is technically three people. There is Brother Day, who played by, who's played by Pace. There is the younger brother Dawn and the senior brother Dusk. Um, most of these additions are invented out of whole cloth. Nothing to do yeah. with the original story of the Foundation. Um, <laughs> However, after most of the second episode, the show and the books are pretty much unrecognizable. Um, even if you come in without having read a single page of Asimov, you notice the drawn-out plots that go nowhere, the padding, the weird choices the show has, um, the, the weird choices the characters make to keep the plot from moving forward, um, cheap, nonsensical melodrama that just fills, fills the series, Foundation doesn't want to be Foundation. It wants oh. to be the heady, thoughtful, revelatory first season of Westworld. So it pontificates about politics and religion and souls, but it doesn't have the depth to say anything important. The TV series also simultaneously wants to be the new Game of Thrones with its political oh. maneuvering, um, most of which is invented wholesale for the show. Uh, but once Harry Seldon's spaceship takes off at the end of the first episodes, those 
imperial politics have virtually nothing to do with the foundation. Um, and, and, and the worst part is it also wants to be a sci-fi action show um, in, in the vein of a Star Trek discovery. Um, it's so busy trying to be all these things that it doesn't have time to be foundation. <laughs> so it's a 3 out of 10 for me, unfortunately. Oh, Boy. Uh, well, were you looking forward to watching this? Uh, I mean, like, I I was going to wait, right? Because for anything that's kind of beloved, um, mm. you know, uh, I... Don't don't get. It. I think a lot of times, like when I I really enjoy a piece of work and it's going to be adapted, yeah. I want it to succeed, right? Because yep. that just means more material for me to consume. But at yep. the same time, you also have a part of you is like this is just like it is too seminal or it's too vast for it and it's unadaptable, you know. Yeah. Uh, and I felt that it would probably be the case for Foundation. Right, mm-hmm. and for the longest time, people said that about Lord of the Rings. For the longest time, people said that about Dune as well. But look where we are today, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, and Goya is okay, right? Uh, so maybe I thought there would be a chance that it would be decent. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm I'm disappointed that it's not decent. <laughs> Basically, is the thing. Um, yeah, yeah. But I I totally understand that it is incredibly difficult to do so. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, like just logistically difficult to adapt foundation right in a way that makes sense um for the format um but i was still hoping that you know it would be mm-hmm. at least good or watch worthy but at, at, at three of ten is like not worth my time mm. yeah so yeah cool. yeah um foundation because of how it's written um two or three people in a room talking politics uh it's just, this is a very weird choice for a sci-fi show but aaron Sorkin yeah. should have done this i would I would watch a, a Sokin Foundation. Yeah. I think that would be quite interesting. Yeah. Foundation literally yeah. need, needs no VFX or anything. It's just guys in a room talking. And, and, yeah. and that's what Aaron Sokin does, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Oh, well. Maybe. Uh, maybe. Maybe, yeah. right? Yeah. And maybe in the future, you can reboot it like uh, Denis Villeneuve did. Anyways, uh, next up, I'm going to be talking about a documentary called Woodlands Dark and Days Bewitched. Uh, Woodlands Dark and Days Bewitched is an incredible three-and-a-half-hour documentary um, wow. about the history of folk horror starting from the 1960s to today. Um, it explores the subgenre from its beginnings uh, in a trilogy of films, uh, including Michael Reeves' The Witchfinder General in 1968, um, mm-hmm. Piers Haggard's Blood on Satan's Claw in 1971, and Robin Hardy's The Wicker Man in 1973. Uh, and then it, 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 it explores its proliferation on British television in the 1970s and its uh, culturally specific manifestations uh, in America, in Asia, in Australia, uh, and in Europe. Um, and it explores the, the folk horror subgenre and the subgenre's revival over the last decade in films like The Witch or Midsommar. Mm-hmm. Um, this movie is such a phenomenal deep dive into the origins and evolution of folk horror. It delivers um, a dizzyingly comprehensive um, thesis uh, and uh, statement, and uh, so much. It's, it's almost like homework. It's a documentary that, <laughs> that, that, that approaches the subgenre's history with a wide-reaching critical perspective. Um, it features interviews with filmmakers like Robert Eggers and Ellis Lowe, alongside other authors, critics, uh, academics, uh, don't let the runtime put you off. This is easily 
the best way to get engrossed in the subject matter, especially if you're a horror fan mm -hmm. or a folk horror fan specifically, and you want to know how the genre began and how it evolved. Um, I'm giving this a 9 out of 10. Wow. Okay. Very highly I'm gonna, rated. I'm going to just put that down for watching. Mm -hmm. yeah. I'm going to tell Chris about that too. Sounds like right up his alley. Definitely. Uh, um, to cap off this particular portion of uh, Quick Hits, I'm going to be talking about a new children's animated series on Netflix called Maya and the Free. Mm -hmm. uh, it comes to you from Jorge Gutierrez, best known as the director of The Book of Life. Uh, Maya and the Free is a fantasy steeped in Mesoamerican mythology and magic, and it's rich in Mexican culture. The story follows Maya, played by Zoe, Zoe Saldana, who is a wayward warrior princess. Um, you know, she's uh, like, like the girl and brave. You know, she hates like fancy dresses and responsibilities of diplomacy and would much rather like scrap with opponents in a local fight club. Uh, but on the day of her quinceanera, a messenger from the underworld tells her that she's to be sacrificed to the god of war. Uh, her family and kingdom rally around her. But after a devastating battle with significant casualties, Maya must reinterpret a, an age-old prophecy that could tell her how to defeat the murderous god by reuniting uh, warriors from the neighboring kingdoms. Uh, the epic quest that follows is both narratively and visually arresting, uh, particularly because it's also unique uh, and different from the Eurocentric kids' fantasy shows out there, you know? Mm -hmm. um, the various realms, the indigenous art, the ancient culture, the artifacts are all fresh and educational because it borrows designs and law from Aztec culture, which is not often seen in mainstream cartoons such as this. Yeah. Uh, on the downside, though, the story is a little too familiar. It draws on all the tropes and cliches we've seen before, um, it could be called the Latin American Troll Hunters. Uh, it could also be called the Mexican Legend of Korra. You know, yeah. uh, it, you know, it could also be called the Mesoamerican Raya and the Last Dragon. Uh, <laughs> the, the, the Mexican part is unique. Everything else is not. Uh, that being mm. said, I do really like that the creators took strides to create a show aimed at Latinx kids and viewers by centering voices from their communities and um, paying accurate homage to Latin America's wealth of ancient stories and traditions. Mm -hmm. um, in this sense, Maya and the Free is not playing representation for the sake of representation, but actually creating something that feels organic from the culture. Um, the animation is very good, it's vibrant, the story is fun, especially for kids. Uh, so just based on that, I'm giving this a 7 out of 10. Oh, okay. All yeah, right. yeah, I saw uh, the trailer for it. It looked pretty good. Nice, nice. Um, next up, though, we are still keeping with Netflix, right? Uh, is that where Violet Evergarden, the movie, is on? Yes, it is. Yes, yep. it is. Yeah, so uh, next up, we're going to talk about... I'm going to talk about uh, yep. Violet Evergarden, the movie, which is actually the second uh, Violet Evergarden film. Uh, I yep. believe we've covered Eternity and the Auto Memory Doll, which came out... Uh, 2019, right? 2019. Uh, Violet Evergarden, the movie, actually came out end of last year, but of course... Uh, it is widely available on Netflix now. Uh, mm. I'm going to start off with a disclaimer, right? Those of you who have followed the podcast for a while know that I am a big, big Violet Evergarden fan. I am a yep. fanboy. Know things about it. I yep. don't understand why it's not bigger than it is. I still is incredibly mm. underrated. Uh, and based upon that, uh, just be aware that all all of my uh, squealing and fanboying uh, comes from that place. Right. Yeah. Uh, I'm yeah. not sure if I can be perfectly objective about a review like this simply because that I followed 
Violet Evergarden since it came out, right? And I'm highly, highly invested in this fictional girl story and how mm. that kind of pans out, uh, which is what um, Violet Evergarden, the movie, is about. It's about wrapping up kind of the loose ends of all the threads that have gone through the entire series into the first movie and finally kind of closing uh, closing several chapters, I think, uh, that have been set up and explored over the entire uh length and breadth of the franchise. Um, yeah. uh, the the premise of Violet Evergarden in its totality, right? And I'm going to mm-hmm. talk about in its totality because it's very hard to talk about the movie without talking about the whole story in its totality. Okay. Uh, is nothing inventive. I think maybe the only, the only thing that is preventing Violet Evergarden as a franchise from becoming a classic is that it is not boundary pushing in the way people want some of their anime to be. Mm. Right? Like it's never going to be, you know, uh, your ghost in the shell kind of level thing where it's going to cause people to think, uh, you know, about, about life. It's not going to be like your, uh, you know, any of your shonen kind of thing. It's not going to bring you any of that. Um, it's not inventive. Is what I'm trying mm. to say, essentially, mm-hmm. right? And some people, myself included, often feel that in order to be an S tier anime, you know, it's got to be inventive on some level. Vala Garden isn't inventive. It does have a very mm. interesting premise. It's world building while not fully fleshed out, as fully fleshed out as it could possibly be, is is solid and interesting. And I think that is a very, very good place for um, character development. If there's anything that it does well and does exceptionally well is the character work, especially yep. in Violet itself. And it has had a solid season and two entire we- very well-made and well-written movies mm. to establish that. Uh, what makes this movie great is the fact that you finally get, as an audience and someone who has followed the story, some yep. emotional payoff from the long-running threads that have been going on Mm -hmm. uh, in particular Um, I don't want to spoil it Uh, and yeah it's hard to talk about what exactly goes on in the movie without spoiling it so I'm just going to talk about the surface level stuff Uh, I don't know how it is possible to do an anime series at the level of production that they have done in Mm -hmm. the regular season then bump it up at the first Mm -hmm. movie and then bump yeah. it up again for this movie, right? Yep. It is insane. Um, and I don't know if I've actually said this before, but one very easy way to tell the quality of animation for an anime is to see how they animate rain. Yeah. There's a good portion of some very amazing scenes uh, in yeah. rain, uh, in this, mm-hmm. in, towards the latter half of this movie that are simply breathtaking right mm. and it, it brought back feelings like the first time like I was truly impressed with the animation of Rain in an anime mm. was in Cowboy Bebop the movie right yeah. uh, that was like the final kind of ending scene in the rain took my breath away always had a thing for that in, in animes to come and that's like the gold standard to see how great an animation studio is yeah we get all of that here right every single frame is animated to the utmost detail possible. The colors are phenomenal. 
The soundtrack is fitting and moving. The emotional beats are constantly on point. Like, it's very hard to fault anything with Violet Evergarden outside of the fact that it's just not everyone's cup of tea, right? I have mm. a lot of friends who have given it a chance and they don't like the pacing, right? There's yeah. not enough there for to kind of, kind of carry them. And while this movie in particular, uh, across the entire franchise, is doused with even more melancholy and pensiveness and wrought with kind of like emotional not heartbreak necessarily but emotionally wrought is what I'm is the term uh, yeah I, I I think that it is a phenomenal wrap up well yeah the, I'm not saying that the, the franchise is ending necessarily but it's a phenomenal wrap up to some of the most important parts of the story across the franchise yeah right and uh, that in and of itself, having closures to those things and getting closures to those things, especially in an anime franchise, is mm. huge. Um, mm-hmm. Not just for fans of the series, but also now that it is formed kind of its own... I mean, it's come to fruition in its own totality to a degree, right? Uh, makes mm-hmm. it a lot easier for me to recommend Violet Evergarden as a whole, uh, mm. as a story, because I can safely tell people that look whatever it is at the beginning if you you if you you know uh give it a chance and if it's your thing or it's something that you don't mind watching like the payoff is extremely extremely rewarding and it's yep. beautiful to boot um, yeah. yeah so everything that i said about ever about ever gotten before is present here now uh now uh, added with the fact that there is a huge amount of emotional payoff, uh, which may mm. or may not be something that the fans wanted uh, necessarily. Okay. Um, but yeah, uh, I'm going to give this an 8 out of 10. Wow, right? nice. That yeah. is okay. as objective as I can be as a fanboy. Sure. Yeah, it sure. is It is yeah. really like, I don't know if there is a more polished anime out there. Okay. Uh, just in terms of like the production value, and uh, yeah, Kyoani is insane, lah. I I really don't know how else to put it, right? Like, yeah. to to be able to to produce this as consistently, and yeah. like continually become more inventive of it. Just the camera work alone, the the camera quote unquote work alone is insane. Uh, mm. you could you know there are there are literally hundreds of possible like screensaver things that you could screenshot from this movie and it would look like someone spent you know hundreds of hours on that uh, and Definitely. somebody probably has you know yeah um, yeah. yeah like uh, you know it is yeah there, there were moments in time and I think like it, it just in general Violet's story has resonated with me thematically and emotionally on a lot of levels uh, there were multiple times for this particular movie that I was moved to tears yeah. Um and you know that's that's not something that happens very often, mm-hmm. um and I I just think it's a very beautiful addition to to Violet's journey, um and you know on top of everything else that they've done right, you know mm. um yeah so like to me you know it's not it's not perfect by all means right like definitely I'm not gonna give it a ten out of ten necessarily just because okay. it's not it doesn't push boundaries in the way. That that it's not inventive, you know, in in gotcha. or, or groundbreaking, but it is yep. so so well made, and I think it deserves an eight out of ten. 
Awesome, you know. Um, yeah. Uh, good for fans of Violet Evergarden to to get this movie out there and now widely available on Netflix, as we've mentioned. Yeah. Uh, next up, we're moving on to the second portion of Quick Hits, where firstly I'm going to talk about The Spine of Night, which is a wonderful accomplishment in low budget, hand drawn, and rotoscoped animation. Oh, um, it unfolds a meditative and existential tale of ultraviolet high fantasy. Um, it is written and directed by Morgan Galen King and Philip Gallat. It follows Zod, who is a witch voiced by Lucy Lawless, who finds an ancient flower on top of a snowy mountain. Um, described as the last light of the gods, the flower has incredible power, and its guardian, uh, voiced by Richard E. Grant, will kill anyone dumb enough to make a play for it. Instead of violence, though, Zod regales the Keeper of the Flower with her life story, which also spans different generations, heroes, and villains, thus making this uh, a 1001 Arabian Nights anthology of sorts. Um, from its huh. vibrant old-school animation to its surplus of, you know, spurting decapitations and casual nudity, uh, this feels like a throwback to the 80s-style, pulpy, heavy metal fuckier fantasy you know it's oh, wow. it's like what if the guy who made mandy made conan uh, <laughs> the the movie's greatest strength is that it's simple eye candy the animation here is eye-catching despite its low budget but on the downside there is very little in terms of actual plot or emotional investment and the cheap production does sometimes poke true. Mm-hmm. So it's a 7 out of 10 overall. Uh, available on VOD right now. Uh, next up, I'm going to be talking about Antlers, which is a new indie horror film. It follows a small-town Oregon te- teacher named Julia, played by Carrie Russell, and her brother Paul, played mm-hmm. by Jesse Plemons, who is the local sheriff. They become entwined with a young student named Lucas, who harbors a dangerous secret. The boy seems malnourished and keeps drawing disturbing pictures of monsters and mutilation. Uh, little does Julia know that Lucas has reason to think that monsters are real. Um, his father, who is a coal miner, is slowly succumbing to a strange sickness. The result of the sickness is a taste for human flesh and a giant pair of, you know, antlers, as is the title. Um, mm. Here's what I liked. The creature effects in the movie are excellent. The gradual transformation of Lucas's father to a beast feels viscerally unpleasant and quite ghastly. Mm-hmm. The story unpacks interesting parallels to non-supernatural child neglect. Um, Lucas could just as easily be the son of a drug addict, for example, um, still forced to take care of himself and his parents, uh, uh, underfeeding himself to sustain the rampant needs of his guardian. Um, where the movie doesn't quite work is when we get to Julia and Paul's backstory, the brother and sister. It's not mm-hmm. Carrie Russell or Jesse Plemons' fault. They are, in fact, terrific actors who do their best to make the characters work. The story for them is just fairly pedestrian. Um, yeah. It's a story about an adult who returns home after an abusive childhood, takes care of a child with similar issues, uh, learns to overcome monsters, both literal and metaphorical. Um, it is possibly the most common storyline um, of horror in the 2010s. It is predictable and slow and sparse, but not in a good way. Mm-hmm. Like um, Lots of A24 stuff is sparse and deliberate. The problem with Endless is, is, is that it's sparse without substance. So I'm giving this a 5 out of 10, unfortunately. Oh. Yeah, I've been looking forward to this for two years. It's been delayed Man. for a very long time. Very disappointed. Uh, 
Yeah. Uh, finally, I'm going to be talking about Halloween Kills. <laughs> uh, back in 2018, David Gordon Green accomplished a minor miracle and managed to successfully reboot the failing Halloween franchise with a fantastic movie. The 2018 Halloween wisely erased all those terrible sequels from the 80s and 90s and functioned as the new canonical Halloween 2. The new film now, uh, basically Halloween 3, or Halloween Kills, is the sequel to the 2018 film and picks up minutes after the ending. Um, Laurie Strode, played by Jamie Lee Curtis, and her daughter Karen and granddaughter Allison mm-hmm. have just left the masked monster Michael Myers caged and burning in Laurie's basement. Mm-hmm. Laurie is rushed to the hospital with life-threatening injuries, you know, uh, believing that she has finally killed her lifelong tormentor. Uh, but when Michael inevitably manages to free himself from Laurie's trap, the ritual bloodbath ensues. Um, so Laurie fights a pain and prepares to defend herself against him. She actually manages to inspire all of the town, all of the town of Haydenfield, you know, the town that Michael Myers has been terrorizing all of these years. They inspire all... Mm-hmm everyone and all the previous victims to rise up against the unstoppable monster. So the Strode women join a group of other survivors uh, from Michael's first rampage to decide to take matters into their own hands by forming um, a sort of vigilante mob, you know, armed with shotguns and shit to, to go out and hunt Michael mm-hmm. once and for all. Um, it is the, the, the reverse. Like now Michael is being hunted. Um, it, is, it sounds like a front premise, uh, but unfortunately, um, Halloween Kills is so unimaginative and uninspired in its execution that most viewers will wish the franchise did did. Um, if you're into like a series of gruesome kills and slasher frills, then maybe this movie has something for you. But it's sloppy plotting and non-existent emotional investment um, totally turned me off. Um, after saving the franchise, mm-hmm. David Gordon Green has turned around and made exactly the kind of witless, worthless sequel that bled the franchise dry in the 80s and 90s. Yeah. Uh, it is once again unrebooted. So, yeah, I'm giving this film a 2 out of 10, and I have no interest in seeing the final installment of the trilogy. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's it for uh, quick hits. Uh, but Isa has one more hit uh, for you to go. It yep. is, the, it is um, a spin-off from the Bright uh, feature film, which yep. took place a bit on Netflix like a few years ago starring Will Smith. It is an anime prequel called Samurai Soul. What do you think about it? Yeah. So... (sighs) (laughs) Okay. Okay. So, Bright Samurai Soul. um, Yeah. I mean, like, sometimes things work better in anime, right? Like, when I watched Bright at first in 2017, despite the fact I couldn't, right, uh, remember Mm. much about it, was like, okay, sure, right? Modern day fantasy... Right, you've got your elves, you've got your orcs, etc., etc. Mm-hmm. You know, nothing new, nothing done before. First time I've uh, they've done it live action, um, mm-hmm. in a while. Backed by Netflix, got a big budget, got Will Smith, potential to be pretty good. What we mm-hmm. got in the end was like half baked, right? And half baked is putting it kindly. Yep. Uh unfortunately, the the main problem with Bright Sunrise Soul that is kind of more of the same. It feels half baked. Um, mm. There is no soul in this movie, which I think is very sad. The premise of it is basically the exact same thing, but this time we are in the early stages of the Meiji Restoration period. Yep. Right? You have all your fantasy, you've got your orcs, your goblins, your centaurs, your elves, etc., etc., etc. The opening sequence that is supposed to establish the story actually tells you absolutely nothing about what's going on. Um, 
the cell shading animation is a unique look as far as cell shaded animation goes. Like the art style yep. is pretty unique looking. Uh, okay. It goes for a much more realistic looking uh, vibe to it than necessarily your typical anime with the big eyes, etc., etc. Um, yeah. and And, you know, exaggerated proportions and so on and so forth. Uh, but the camera work is horrendous. Absolutely horrendous. Like, the animation mm-hmm. isn't great. The art style isn't really my thing, but it's interesting. The camera mm-hmm. work is a mess, right? Like, every single fight scene has this clunky, stupid, overdone, 360-degree mm-hmm. spin around the fight mm-hmm. into a zoom out, into a zoom in. Every single fight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I get it makes yeah. absolutely no sense whatsoever, yeah. right? Like, it is nausea-inducing at a point mm-hmm. in time of the movie. Um, half an hour into the movie, you have no idea what this movie is about. An hour into the movie, you still have no idea what this movie is about. The MacGuffin mm-hmm. appears in literally the last 20 minutes of the movie, right? Mm. This is not a long movie. It's an 80-minute movie. Um, so, like, <laughs> I... I Oh my god. It's so sad. It it, it really is, right? Because like there are literally a hundred other Sengoku Meiji period anime that is fantasy. So you get your fantasy and you get your samurai fix at the same time, right? Mm-hmm. That are made at much lower budgets. Um that are, are way, way better than this. Now the mm-hmm. only saving grace, and I think this is a point of contention among a lot of people who have given reviews for this, is that I like the soundtrack. Oh, and okay. it's an interesting choice of soundtrack because it's Japanese math rock. Yep, always good. And always good. Yeah, it is. I I stood up from the movie, got my phone, came out to Shazam some some shit, some tracks, right? Yeah. Because the music is banging. Does it fit the movie? No. Does it fit the fight scenes? No. But the music is really good. And I don't, like, a, a lot of people hate the fact that the music doesn't fit. But, like, mm-hmm. in and of itself, the music is really good. I've discovered mm-hmm. some interesting tracks. Uh, and that's my entire takeaway from this movie. I feel wow. like I wasted 80 minutes of my life. Except for yeah. the fact that, yeah, the music was dope. Um, I would put the movie on and listen to the music, basically. Interesting. Um, okay. Yeah. Uh, outside of that, like, it really kind of struggles uh, along the way. Okay. Uh, the voice acting is mediocre, the story is mediocre, the character developments is mediocre. Like, yeah. Mm-hmm. This thing has no soul, Um, you know. And again... Uh, how, would, mm-hmm. um, how would you rate it, you know, like, uh, overall? I'm going to give it like a 4 out of 10. Oh, okay. That doesn't sound so bad, actually. Yeah, the music gave it like a plus 2. Okay, okay. I see. Yeah. 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 Uh, so I'm going to give it a 4 out of 10. Like, it's... I mean... You can watch it, lah. You know, I wouldn't recommend okay. you do it. Yeah. Okay. All right. All right. Okay. A four out of ten sounds fair. I mean, I had no interest in watching anything bright related after the, the bright film. Movie? Yeah, yeah, I made so... a mistake of thinking that you know maybe they would do it better in anime, but no, no. Okay. Okay. Well, yeah. I mean, that's it for all the screen stuff that we're talking about uh, this month. Uh, we're gonna cap it off with a segment called the pool list, where I'll be recommending some uh, books and comics for you to read. Uh, first off, I'm going to be talking about The Midnight Library, which is written by English author Matt Haig. 
uh, it's one of the most affecting books that you will ever read. And mm-hmm. it's certainly a more emotionally profound multiverse fantasy than What If, I think. Um, oh, the really? the novel, I mean, What If is good for what it is, but yep. I, emotionally profound or thought-provoking is, is not, not yeah. what it's going for. <laughs> <laughs> um, the novel follows a young woman named Nora Seed who, li- who lives a monotonous, ordinary life, um, and she feels unwant- unwanted and unaccomplished. Uh, one night, her despair reaches a peak and she tries to commit suicide, but it doesn't end there. Um, Nora actually gets a chance to experience the various ways her life could have unfolded if she had made slightly different choices. Uh, mm-hmm. That's because she finds herself in the afterlife in a place called the Midnight Library, which exists between life and death. And it's filled with an infinity of books telling the stories of endless parallel, parallel lives she might have lived. Um, not only can she read them, but she can jump into the minds and the bodies of her, for lack of a better term, variants. Um, thus, she is given the chance to undo her regrets and try out new lives, you know, all the things that she thinks that she should have done or she could have done uh, to make her life better and more, me- more memorable or more significant. Um, so while she's in the Midnight Library, uh, Nora lives hundreds of lives and becomes hundreds of different versions of herself, some she'd never even fathom. But she's faced with a difficult decision. She must decide what she is willing to sacrifice in order to live permanently in one of these ideal lives because she's given yeah. the option to do that. You know, if uh, she's given a, a second chance at life, all she has to do is pick one of the quote-unquote ideal lives, the alternate lives that, that seem ideal to her. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, she lives them for a time and they seem perfect for a while, but she realizes that, you know, there's always a new set of challenges awaiting. You know, there's no life that is perfect. Um, Nora's exploration of herself is captivating as she attempts to discern what is really important in her life. Um, the novel is really well-written and thought-provoking. Um, Nora's emotions are deeply portrayed, and I was captivated by the depth of Hake's storytelling. Um, the concept is fairly simple. It, it drew me in as a reader and encompassed so many different emotional experiences that come with life. Mm-hmm. Um, I suspect that it will be especially resonant for someone who's e- ever had issues with um, anxiety or, or, or depression or suicidal ideation um, because the way the book describes the thought process of such mental despair is quite truthful and authentic. Um, I spent much of the Midnight Library uh, reflecting on my own uh, life and the decisions I've made uh, as well as looking to the future and imagining the, the infinite possibilities of what life could be. Um, if this is a sign of a talented author. Uh, so when Nora's journey allows her to realize that, you know, perhaps even the most seemingly perfect or worthwhile lives are not all they're cracked up to be. And when ultimately she realizes that, you know, um, life will give you a new perspective if you're willing to stick around long enough to see it, regardless of what type of life it is. Um, Hick brings the conclusion to, uh, to, to a satisfying and enlightening uh, and deeply moving uh, climax. Uh, so yeah, I really, really like this book. Mm. Go go seek it out on Amazon or your local bookstores or your, your local library. Um, yeah, I mean, highly recommended here. Uh, next up, and finally, I'm going to be talking about Fangs, which is uh, by Sarah Anderson. Um, mm. It is the cutest and sweetest and funniest story about a romance between a vampire and a werewolf that you'll ever read. Um, oh. It is full of witty, dark humor, and awesome puns, and really kind of just follows the domestic life of a vampire girl and a werewolf guy 
um, as they build a life together. You know, first they meet at a bar, and during small talk, she says to the werewolf guy that she prefers dogs to cats. And he says that he likes golf girls, and that was it. They fell in love. Um, nothing insane happens. Uh, it's just adorably funny vignettes of scenes mm-hmm. uh, of them, you know, watching movies on the couch or going for walks in the park and other small moments like that. Fangs is 100 pages, but each page cool. is just one... Yeah, 100 pages only. Wow. But each page okay. is just one panel or two panels at most. Uh, containing either one, only one or two lines, uh, which is either a hilarious visual gag or an amazing punchline. It's a bit like the comic strips that you read uh, in newspapers, you know, back in the day. Ah. Um, the comic made me LOL several times, like literal laugh out loud. Um, then, and this will take you like 15 to 20 minutes max to read. Uh, it's such an adorable little story with gorgeous Art Nouveau style. Um, you know, this, her style of cartooning is so unique and cool that I really, really enjoyed it just for that. Uh, and the Art Nouveau style really fits the tone, uh, the, the piffy tone really, really well. So highly recommend it too. You can find this at your local library or your local comic bookshop or your local bookshop actually. Um, and this will make a great Halloween gift if you want mm-hmm. to get someone a Halloween gift. Yeah. And yeah, that is it for this week's episode, or this month's episode of General Equality 47. We'll be back in a couple of weeks uh, for you know more Beholds and more General Equalities. Uh, Behold 39, which is mm-hmm. coming in a couple of weeks, uh, features a bunch of sitcoms that I love, um, obscure <laughs> stuff, uh, like Detroiters and The Other Two and Party Down and Lost at Spookies. It's very, a very indulgent episode. Uh, up, subsequent to that, I'll be, we'll be talking about non-fiction on Netflix because um, with Tiger King returning uh, next (laughs) month, um, I I thought this would be a good time to bring up the idea that I find that most of the popular non-fiction on Netflix to be sensationalistic, exploitative, or dishonest in the case of Seaspiracy, you know, Uh stuff like that. uh Mm -hmm. And I would like to focus on the good Netflix nonfiction that is, that is full of journalistic integrity that is made with heart and soul and insight and is incisive. Uh, so we'll be talking about uh, films like American Factory and Crip Camp alongside shows like Lennox Hill and The Innocence Files. Next month, we'll be back with John Ricotti 48, uh, headlined by Chloe Zhao's The Eternals, Edgar Wright's Last Night in Soho. So those are two big filmmakers with movies coming out next month. Mm-hmm. Alongside uh, the live-action Cowboy Bebop on Netflix, which is, I mean, I'm on a fence. I don't know. We'll see how it goes. Um, a new sequel to the Ghostbusters. This one is canon. Unlike, <laughs> the, un- unlike the female Ghostbusters, which was not canon. This one is canon. It's uh, written and directed by the son of the original Ghostbusters director, uh, Ivan and Jason Reitman. Uh, so excited for that if you've ever seen thank you for smoking have you yep seen thank yeah yeah that's jason reitman yeah oh. he's the guy that's directing this um for quick hits i'll be talking about big mouth and kanto uh arcane which i think is a league of legends show yep um super crooks um hellbound which is another k drama that sounds fascinating it's by the director of train to busan uh and army of thieves uh speaking of uh, zombies which is a prequel to army of the dead i saw his back with uh anime corner uh what do you have for anime corner next month Yes, so uh, we've got a couple of returning things that have come back. Uh, World Trigger Season 3 is back. Jobless Reincarnation is back and has exploded in a long way. And I'm going to be talking about a couple of new stuff. Uh, Again, I think we've seen the golden season this year already. So nothing Mm. of that caliber. But there are three, at least, uh, three things that I'm kind of eyeing at the moment. Uh, Miracle-chan being the most widely talked about and anticipated for the year. 
but Blue Period is out on Netflix and is showing weekly as well. That's something that I'm currently watching and very, very into uh, for fans mm-hmm. of people who like, you know, Your Lie in April. Uh, mm-hmm. Hits and I was just talking about Tuck OP Destiny, uh, which is is quite a ride. I'm not sure if it's for everybody, but I'm kind of enjoying how, how ridiculous uh, it has gotten so far. Okay, okay. So just three out of the kind of mixed bag of stuff that we have this time. Uh, you know, it, again, in a whole bunch of like isekai stuff that's coming out. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there's some, there's some quality stuff going on and I'll dive more into, the, uh, into that next month. Awesome. Um, till then, you know, this has been Hit Zero. I'm Aisa. Uh, goodbye, guys. Take care. Ciao.